uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's great to have you here with us. Uh, now, normally, this would be the Sunday where we recognize some of our graduates and celebrate them. And the way that would normally work is we would have folks stand up here in the room, and we would applaud, and we would pray for those individuals. But as things are different right now, we're going to do this a little bit differently this weekend. Matt mentioned the uh, online bulletin and would encourage you, if you haven't downloaded that, to go ahead and grab that at some point, uh, whether that's this morning or throughout the week. Individuals who have graduated in this season, they are listed in that online bulletin and would encourage you to be praying for those individuals, maybe even reach out to them this week and extend congratulations to them. There's a lot of work that's gone into this and uh, we just want to recognize that and celebrate that with them. And so as we begin this morning, we're going to take a minute anyway and pray for them right now and also just pray as we get ready to uh, jump back into the Bible and see what it has to say to us. So would you pray with me, please? Father, just for our graduates, thank you so much uh, for all the hard work and the effort and the time and the investments that they have made to get to this point. We just pray, uh, even as things are a little bit different right now, that they would have an opportunity to celebrate that. And we pray that you would help them as they move forward from here, whether that is in the workplace or with continued education or something else. God, please continue to direct their lives and their steps. Please continue to draw them to you. As we take some time and we just continue in our series, God, speak to our lives and to our hearts. Help us to see your truth and what it means to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes a town will have something go on in that town that will cause that town to become famous for something that, in retrospect, they might not want to be famous for. For example, it's the year 1968. The Philadelphia Eagles have started out the season 0-11, which is a horrible start to a football season. The, the silver lining in that, though, was that the Eagles were like they're going to get the number one pick in next year's draft. They were going to win the O.J. Simpson lottery until towards the end of the season, the team started winning games, which meant that the season now is just a complete bust. They're horrible all season long, and there's no benefit from it whatsoever. So the Eagles fans at that point in time, they're really cranky. They're really unhappy with their organization. Now, Every year, the Sunday before Christmas, there was a tradition in Philadelphia at the Eagles games. They, they would have a, during halftime, a Christmas parade led by none other than Santa Claus himself. That year, however, on Saturday night, they got about a foot of snow. 
and Santa didn't show up to work on Sunday morning at the Eagles game. And so the, 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 the folks in the stands, they're unhappy. They're sitting in a foot of snow. It's cold. Their team is no good. There's no benefit from that. And the officials at the stadium are beginning to freak out because there's no Santa Claus to lead the parade during halftime. Now, this is where young Frank Olivio came into the situation. Frank's this kid who showed up every year for this particular game wearing a ratty Santa Claus suit. And when the officials, you know, in the stadium, when they spotted him, the, the stadium folks went over and they said to this kid, hey, would you like to play Santa in our parade? Our, our Santa didn't show up. Poor Frank wasn't very good at reading the room, and so he agreed. So you've got this teenager leading the Santa, you know, as Santa, leading the, the, the Christmas parade during halftime, and the fans just weren't feeling it. First, the boos start coming down. They booed Santa in Philly. Then the snowballs started coming. You had an entire stadium of Eagles fans who pelted Santa with snowballs. It got so bad that as the snowballs are raining down, young Frank charges the stands, gets to the edge, jabs his finger up and says, you all aren't getting anything for Christmas this year. And that was the year that Philadelphia became famous as the town that booed Santa and pelted him with snowballs. Now, why I share that story will become apparent in just a minute, but for now, but for now, um, just thanks so much for joining us as we are in the second to last week of our series that we have entitled Equipped. What we have been doing in this series is we've just been recognizing life is hard, comes with all kinds of challenges. And, and we've been looking at this passage from the book of 2 Peter where Peter tells us that God himself wants to equip us with everything that we need to meet the challenges that we face in life and do so well. And so we've been wrestling with this question of, okay, if, if that's what God wants to do, then how? How does God go about equipping us to meet the challenges we face in life well? And we've been saying that Peter points us to that in, in verses 5, 6, and 7 in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, where Peter says to us, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness and to your godliness mutual affection and to your mutual affection love. Peter tells us to make every effort to add these virtues to our faith because Peter understands that the cultivation of these virtues in our life is the means by which God is equipping us to meet the challenges that we face and to do so well. And so what we've been doing in the series is each week we're taking one of these virtues, we're defining what this virtue is, we're trying to, to just illustrate and flesh out what this virtue looks like in somebody's life. And then finally, we're just talking about how do we cultivate this virtue in our lives today. And so as we continue today, we're going to go after the second to last virtue, the virtue of mutual affection. Now, when Peter tells you and me, make every effort 
to add to your faith mutual affection, just what is it that Peter has in mind? Well, the word that we have translated here is mutual affection. In Greek, that is the word Philadelphian. Philadelphian. That word sound familiar? Yeah, it's where we get our word Philadelphia from. In fact, Philadelphia, the nickname for Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's right. Now, here's the good news. When, when Peter tells us to make every effort to add to our faith Philadelphian or mutual affection or brotherly love, Peter does not have in mind that when we're frustrated with each other that we would boo each other. Peter does not have in mind that we would pelt one another with snowballs. Instead, what Peter has in mind here is that we would, we would have a familial kind of affection for each other in the family of God. Peter has in mind that, that we would feel about and treat each other the way that family does. Not, not the way that dysfunctional family does. The way that healthy family does. When Peter says to us, make every effort to add to your faith mutual affection, Peter has in mind that we would treat each other the way that family treats each other, the way that a healthy family treats each other, even though we're not biologically related to each other. Now, when, when I think of folks who illustrate this, this, this virtue, this idea of mutual affection, two individuals come to mind for me. Jonathan and David. Their story is, is recorded for us in the book of 1 Samuel over several chapters. And today, we're, we're going to take some time and just summarize and highlight some points from their friendship. And as we do, it should help us really flesh out even more what Peter has in mind when he tells us to make every effort to add to our faith mutual affection. Jonathan and David's story, it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and it begins like this. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. We're never told exactly why it is that, that, that Jonathan seemed to have this deep connection with David. But, but for some reason, Jonathan's spirit just was connected to David's spirit. And Jonathan, he, he, he felt about David and treated David the way that family should. Now, depending on your family background, this can, can, can be a difficult thing for some of us to wrap our brains around. Like, like, I know for me, growing up, my dad was an only child, so there wasn't like this big extended family to spend time with, but my mom was one of four kids. And my mom's family background, her family was just incredibly dysfunctional. And so you would go to a family gathering on my mom's side of the family, and there was this very clear sense of, you're not wanted here, you are not welcome here, you better watch your back here. So much so that family gatherings on my mom's side of the family, they were always stressful, emotionally painful kind of events. Now, when my wife and I got married, 
It was the, the exact opposite with her family. Her family did family really well. So much so that when we were young marrieds, we would go to her side of the family for an event and it was, it was disconcerting to me. Like I had this sense that something was radically different here. Something was out of the, the norm for me, but, but I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was and it, it would weird me out. And I can remember one year when I finally figured out what it was. It was Christmas time. Her parents were living in Illinois and they invited you know, her, her sisters and, and her and all the, 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 the husbands and the kids to come on out to Illinois with them. And her dad even invited his own siblings and their family as well. And so you had all these folks who drove nine miles or nine hours or more to celebrate Christmas. This is a great big family. And we spent like four days out there doing this. And I can remember one night after dinner, just sitting there and watching my wife's family, and it dawned on me. Like, they want to be here. They're, they're genuinely good to each other. They like each other. What is wrong with them? Don't they realize they're related? And in that moment, like, two things became super clear to me. One, just how dysfunctional my family background was. And two, I needed to completely rethink how I thought about family. Jonathan, he felt towards David the way a healthy family should feel towards one another. He treated David the way a healthy family should treat each other. Now, there are a number of ways that Jonathan did this. The, the, the first one is found right after David is brought into Saul's service. David's just finished re relieving Goliath of his head, and, and, and Saul brings David into his inner circle. He, he makes him part of the king's court. Now, while this is a wonderful career move for David, it creates some problems for David. See, up to this point in his life, David has been training to be a shepherd. He has literally spent more time with sheep than he has with people, let alone like royalty or members of the king's court. David has spent his days and his nights in open fields and out under the stars. He's not used to the halls of a palace. And he's not equipped for this new life. If, if you remember, David shows up and, and he accepts Goliath's challenge. And he goes out there to fight Goliath. He's got no sword. He's got no shield. He's got no armor. He's got no helmet. He's got more spirit than anybody else out there. But he's not equipped for this thing. He shows up to, to, to now work for his new boss, Saul. And David's a blue jeans and t-shirt kind of guy who's just been invited to a black tie affair. Now, Jonathan sees this. And Jonathan is the kind of guy who'd give you the shirt off of his back. And so when he sees David showing up to the palace, just completely ill-equipped for that as well, we're told that Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. David shows up and he's not dressed and he doesn't, you know, the right way. He didn't have any of the right equipment. 
And Jonathan sees that and he thinks, I got more than enough. He doesn't have what he needs. I'm going to give him some of mine. Now, this is all the more impressive when you remember who Jonathan is. Jonathan is the crown prince. He's a member of the royal court. And Saul's court, it's no different than anybody else's court. There are politics played there. There's a game of thrones going on there. Everybody's vying for position. Everybody's vying for attention. Everybody's trying to get the upper hand. David shows up, and David has just saved the day. All eyes are on David. The spotlight is shining on David. In that moment, he has all the political advantage. And who did David take that spotlight from? Well, you read back just a few chapters, he took it from Jonathan. A few chapters prior to the whole Goliath thing, Jonathan is the one who just saved the day. All eyes were on Jonathan. He had all the political advantage. And yet when David shows up, Jonathan doesn't use David's humble circumstances to to keep that young uh, upstart under check. Jonathan, Jonathan doesn't push himself up as he pushes David down. Jonathan, he loves him as though he were family. But you see, here's the thing. That's what mutual affection does. Peter talks to us about this in his first letter to the churches as he, he kind of unpacks mutual affection for us some more there. In the book of First Peter, Peter writes this. He, to, to the church, he says, finally, All of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. In other words, if one of you is suffering, others of you should suffer with them. Love each other, Peter says. That's our word, Philadelphian. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. In other words, have some compassion with what that person is going through. Keep a humble attitude. See, Jonathan sees David, sees that he's shown up to the king's court with none of the things that, that he's expected to have to function in that world. And Jonathan sees his struggle instead of ignoring it. He has compassion for David. He chooses humility as he interacts with David. He treats him the way the healthy family would. Now, unfortunately for David, his problems at work didn't stop there. Instead, his problems at work were just getting started there. See, see, David had the very real problem that so many of us claim to have at work and most of us exaggerate about work, but that many of our staff here at church actually do have here at work. David's boss was insane. I mean, just a nut job, right? He's just crazy. And, and part of that was driven by the fact that, that Saul is at the end of his career. Saul is king. 
But God's top man has come to Saul and told Saul that because of Saul's sin, that God is going to rip the kingdom out of Saul's hands and he's going to give it to another. He's going to give it to a man who is better than Saul. And then, then Saul finds out that David has been anointed as that man. David has been anointed to be the next king. And so that creates a little tension between Saul and David there at work. It, it's just, it's an ugly situation to be in. And then you put on top of that the fact that, that Saul begins to develop th- this insane jealousy towards David. Like if you could have crawled into Saul's head, you would have heard things like, well, everybody loves David and nobody loves me. And, and, uh, and, and David touches it and it turns to gold and I touch it and it turns to dirt and, and, and God is blessing David and God is cursing me. He gets to the point where, where Saul begins to think of, uh, of David and whenever he does, he thinks, what more can he get but the kingdom? And so Saul comes up with a solution for his Davidic problem. He's just going to murder David. In fact, Saul tells his son Jonathan and all of his attendants to kill David. He's like, guys, I've got this wonderful team building exercise. We're just going to murder David together. It'll bring us together. Now, this again creates a problem, not only for David, but for Jonathan as well. See, see again, Jonathan is the king, he's the, the crown prince. His entire life, he's been told, you're going to be king after your father Saul. And then David comes along. And, and Jonathan knows that David has been anointed to be the next king. And with that, Jonathan's hopes of, of someday reigning in Israel, they're threatened, they even die. But now this hit's been put out on David in his life. And, and if somebody doesn't tell David that a hit has been put out on him, David's as good as gone. But if David is gone, Jonathan's hopes to become king again, they're resurrected. And so what's Jonathan going to do? Because on one hand, he'd like to be king, and on the other hand, his friend... His life is in danger. So Saul tells his attendants, kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Rather than take advantage of the situation, rather than get what he wanted for himself at David's expense, Jonathan helps his friend, even though it's going to cost him personally. In fact, later we're told that Jonathan came to David and said to him, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father knows this. 
as Jonathan tries to, to live into mutual affection with David, Jonathan, he takes David's needs and he places a greater priority on David's needs than he does his own needs. But again, this is what mutual affection does. The Apostle Paul writes to us about this. In Romans 12, about mutual affection, Paul says this. He says, be devoted to one another in love. That's our Philadelphian word again. Be devoted to one another in love. Well, how do I do that, Paul? He tells us. He says, honor, esteem, or value. Honor one another above yourselves. Have a you go first, let me take care of your needs first kind of attitude with each other. That's what Jonathan does for David, even though it's going to cost him. Because see, here's the deal with mutual affection. Here's the deal with brotherly love. Here's the deal with love, period. There's a price tag associated with true, genuine love. The minute love is something more than just fondness or or just affection, it'll cost us. The minute love is going to be something deeper than just a feeling, it's going to cost us. You can't have genuine, mature love and not have a price associated with it. That's just how genuine, mature love works. Jonathan understood this. And he was willing to pay the price in his relationship with David. Well, Jonathan, he manages to talk his dad down for a minute. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't last. Saul's back on the warpath again with David, and this time he doesn't tell Jonathan about it because he knows Jonathan will blab to David. David's intuitive, though. He figures, okay, my boss is throwing spears at me at work. He's sending people to my house in the night to cut my throat. I think Saul's out to get me again, right? And so he goes to Jonathan. He's like, dude, why is your dad like trying to kill me again? And Jonathan's taken back because his dad's kept him in the dark up until now. And so Jonathan says, you know, I didn't know he was. And so they come up with this plan to to really confirm Saul's feelings towards David. And it's a simple plan. Saul's hosting this big party. All his top men are expected to come. And the plan is David won't show up. And when Saul notices that David isn't there, he's going to ask Jonathan where his buddy is. And Jonathan will tell Saul that he gave David permission to go home and celebrate with his family instead. And how Saul responds will let David and Jonathan know where Saul's really at. So they, 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 they live this plan out. David doesn't show up. Saul asks. Jonathan gives him the answer. And Saul responds. And, and it's really clear where Saul's at. Jonathan never saw his father's response coming. Here's what Saul said, and I quote, you stupid son of a whore. Do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place? Shaming yourself and your mother. As long as the son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. 
Now go and get him so I can kill him. Pretty clear. He's still on the warpath. And when Jonathan has the audacity to ask his father what David has done deserving death, Saul picks up a spear and he tries to pin Jonathan to the wall with it. Now, again, all of this puts Jonathan in an incredibly difficult position. His dad is basically saying to him, look, you're going to choose between me and your friend. You can have his respect or you can have mine. You can have his approval, you can have mine. You're going to be faithful and loyal either to me or to him. You don't get it both ways, Jonathan, and I am going to make you choose. In his sin, Saul is putting Jonathan in an incredibly unfair position. But Jonathan's still there, and he still has to choose. And when forced to choose between being loyal to his father who is in the wrong or his friend who is in the right, Jonathan is loyal again to David. Goes and warns David. Helps David get out of town. Saves David's life. Again, Jonathan sympathizes with David. Again, he's tender-hearted and humble with David. Again, he takes David's needs and he puts a higher priority on David's needs than he does his own. But again, this is what mutual affection does. Paul writes this about this in, in his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul writes this. He says, now about your love for one another. And again, that's our word, Philadelphian. About your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, Paul says, yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more. See, the the mutual affection thing, this isn't a one and done. This is something we are meant to forever be growing in. To forever be getting better at. We are meant to do this more and more. And that's what you saw with Jonathan. Just more and more. He treated David the way the healthy family should treat each other. Even though they weren't biologically related. So, when Peter says to you and me, make every effort to add to your faith mutual affection, Peter has in mind that we would be sympathetic towards one another, that we would be tender-hearted towards one another, that we would be humble towards one another, that we would take each other's needs and place a greater priority on each other's needs than we do our own and that we would be growing in that more and more. That we would treat each other the way a healthy family treats each other. And so then the question becomes, okay, if that's the case, then how do we do that? Because here's the deal. 
We need this. I need this from you. You need this from me. We need this from each other. As the challenges of th- that life will send just rain down on us. Sometimes you get to a point where you just think, I don't know if I can keep doing this. But when somebody, when somebody shows you the kind of love that Peter's been talking about here, when somebody pours that kind of love into your life, it's like, man, I'm not alone. My brother, my sister, they've got my back. Maybe I can't do this, but we can. We need this from each other. This is what keeps us going. And and so the question then becomes, how do we cultivate this? Because let's just be honest. It's not always easy to love church people, is it? Church, Church people can be some of the hardest people to love. But we desperately need this. So how do we cultivate this? Well, let me share with you three strategies for doing so. First one is this. Pray. Pray that God would do something in your heart that would cause you to love the way that Peter is talking about here. Peter writes to us about this. Again, in his first letter, Peter writes about the the love that we are supposed to show one another and, and the salvation that we have received from God. Peter says this. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, not to a life that will quickly end. No, you've been born again to a new life that will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Think about this. When it comes to you being forgiven of your sins, when it comes to the new life that you have, when it comes to the hope of heaven that you look forward to. All of those things are in our lives, and it it wasn't about our power that brought those things there. God was at work in our lives, bringing us to that point of salvation. As Peter talks about both salvation and brotherly love in this passage, can I suggest to you that Brotherly love growing in our lives isn't meant to be done in our power alone either. No more than salvation was. Pray. Ask God to change you from the inside out. Give God permission to do something transformative in your heart. Cry out to him to help you love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way he's calling you to. So number one, pray. Number two, preach. Preach to yourself. If you're going, what what, what do you mean by that, preach to yourself? Probably clear for me to say, remind yourself of certain biblical truths about your brothers and sisters in Christ, but I wanted each of these to start out with a P, so I just want to preach, right? So preach to yourself. Preach to yourself about the things you share with the people who are in the family of God with you that are more important than the differences you might have. Remind yourself that you share the body of Christ together. 
remind yourself that, that you and this other person, you share the same Holy Spirit with them. Remind yourself that you have one faith, one salvation, one hope of heaven, one baptism. Remind yourself that you have far more to bring you together than you have to drive you apart. Or preach to yourself about who they are. Remind yourself as you're struggling to love this person, this is God's son. This is God's daughter. Remind yourself this is God's child who he has extended mercy to even though they deserved his retribution. Remind yourself, this is God's child who he extended grace and forgiveness to, even though they did nothing to deserve that. And if this is how God treats his child, who am I to treat them otherwise? Preach to yourself. And then finally, pretend. Pretend. You ever heard the phrase, fake it till you make it? The idea is I, I know what something is that I should be doing that's right. And even though I don't feel like doing that thing, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, some people will say, well, that, that's not genuine. That's not sincere. I'm going to be real. If I don't feel like doing it, I'm not going to do it. I, I couldn't disagree with that sentiment more. This idea where we're going to let our feelings drive our decisions or we're going to let our feelings drive our behavior. To quote one of my favorite deep thinkers, that's a dangerous game, friendo. See, feelings, it's okay, it's okay to give your feelings a say. It's okay if your feelings have a seat on the bus. But wise people, successful people, Mature people, they don't let their feelings behind the steering wheel. Your feelings can ride on the bus, but they don't get to drive. And here's the thing about feelings. When we choose to do the right thing, regardless of how we feel, and then we consistently live into that choice, more often than not, in time, our feelings come along for the ride just fine, and they change. Gang, that's not insincere. That's choosing to follow Jesus regardless of my feelings, as opposed to letting my feelings dictate my walk with Christ. So pray, preach, pretend. See how nice that sounds? Peter says, hey, challenges are going to come. God wants to equip you to meet those challenges well. So make every effort to add to your faith mutual affection. Make every effort to be sympathetic with your brother in Christ. Make every effort to be tender-hearted towards your sister in Christ. Make every effort to be humble with each other, to serve each other, and grow in that more and more and more. Because you need this from each other. 
This is part of what is going to help you meet the challenges that you face and meet them well. Would you pray with me, church? Father, just today, in light of the challenges that we face, God, we want to we live into this first cultivation point right now. And we want to pray and ask that you would help us. Just like you stepped into our lives and drew us to yourself and brought us to a place where we could receive your mercy and grace and be forgiven. God, draw us to yourself. Do a work in our hearts that will cause us to be people who love well, who love each other, who treat each other the way a healthy family should, even though we're not related to one another, not biologically anyway. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 